Hello, and welcome to VC Pathways, where we're going to have fun exploring and discovering what it takes to become a great venture capitalist. I'm your host, Michael Skok, and in collaboration with the Harvard Business School, we're going to demystify and humanize the world of venture capital. Now, without further ado, let me introduce our first guest, Paul Maida, a multi-decade successful VC and founder of Highland Capital. Paul is a man of his word, and while many people were encouraging me to do this podcast, Paul actually volunteered to trial it with me and do a test rehearsal to help us figure out the kind of questions to ask. So we jumped on a Zoom, and as we got going, Paul, being the great raconteur he is, caused me to hit the record button, and I'm glad I did, because even in the supposed rehearsal, he's a natural, and as you'll hear, he's got so much to share. So enjoy this, our alleged test that morphed into our first episode. So first off, how did you find your way into VC? Oh, that was a total accident. I was trained as an engineer, loved engineering, mechanical engineer, worked for six years out in Silicon Valley on biomedical engineering startups and decided I wanted to get back east. So I applied to Harvard Business School, didn't get in, applied again and got in. And I, I, I don't know that many people that haven't had to apply twice. I think they value persistence. In those days, engineering was the most common background for Harvard Business School students, and it was referred to as finishing school for engineers. So I got there and I learned about this thing called VC. Ben Rosen came to talk right after he'd gotten started, but well before he funded Lotus. And Compact, too. And Compact, too. That's right. And the filter a lot of people used are people at Harvard Business School with engineering degrees. And some computer connection. And I had a computer connection. I've been programming since seventh grade. And although I was a mechanical engineer, I also did the software at the company I was working at. We were making a medical device, needed a lot of software. So anyway, TA reached out to me and I learned a little more about this thing called venture capital. Before you know it, I was interviewing with a bunch of people. I interviewed with Summit. They offered me a job. Andy McLean at TA did not offer me a job. I hate him to this day. <laughs> and I got an offer from a firm on the West Coast that was sort of what it turned out to be like a, a billion dollars in net worth difference. And that was Merrill, Pickard, Anderson, and Iyer. If I'd gone there, I probably would have been a founder of Benchmark. But I didn't want to live in California anymore. And so we went to Boston. So I joined Charles River. A lot of our students are really interested in understanding what would you do now to select who you brought in to a firm? Well, you got to realize I was chosen when this industry was nothing. Nobody had ever heard the term VC. I was incredibly lucky, Michael, as were you, although you and your brother were more enterprising. You started a company and learned about VC that way. But it, it wasn't an industry. It was like you didn't get paid much and nobody would do it. Today, if I'm hiring... I'm looking for a couple of things. Number one, I really want someone whose default mode is smiling and networking. I want their resting face to be a smile, not, not in a creepy way like a pedophile or a used car salesman. I want somebody who's inherently optimistic. I was hired because I was an engineer, and I think that was the wrong criterion. I was hired by some people that really weren't technologists at all. And so they had no clue what they didn't know. And I knew what they didn't know. And it turned out to be similar to the stuff I didn't know. 
had a master's in engineering and I knew a lot about a few things, but whenever you meet with an entrepreneur and you want to talk about their product, you got to use common sense and use what background you have. But as you know, so much of this business is about sourcing and about getting there first. The stupidest term in the history of investing is fast follower. (laughs) (laughs) No, thanks. I mean, the the only thing better than investing in a fast follower is a slow follower because you die more quickly. The misery is is over sooner. (laughs) Now, I do think one of the things that you have, though, as an advantage as an engineer is you can relate to other engineers. And that's very important. I, I can relate to other engineers. And I do ask good questions. I will say that's the one immodest thing I'll say. I smell engineering bullshit a mile away and it makes me angry. And I've seen it a number of times. I could go ad nauseum in, in some descriptions of, of companies that were basically borderline fraudulent. I'm glad you finally admitted to something you're good at. I think you asked great questions. I've seen it. What do you wish you had as a skill when you started that you may have gained now or that you think is important for a VC? Oh, I, I wish I were a pathological networker, like I was saying. You know, when I got started in this business, somebody gave me this advice, have two breakfasts, two lunches, and two dinners every day. And I did that for 20 years. And yeah. that's why I'm overweight. I I think that's a perfect piece of advice. Now, I'm going to give you a chance to take a different step back and tell me a story that brings to life for you what it's like to be a VC day to day. The most cogent or the most perhaps salient description is you work and work and work and finally a company is, is going public and your big moment comes and the bell rings, and it's a great career achievement. Every time there's an IPO, your partners may come by your office and say, congratulations. And then a half an hour later, the phone rings, and it's the CEO of one of your companies that's in trouble, about to go pause up. It's just another rock to push up another hill every day. The The triumphs are short, and the price you pay for your mistakes are are very, very long, as you know. And and we all make mistakes because we're making, you know, in business school, they call it decisions under uncertainty. We're making huge decisions where most of the salient information is unknowable. It's unknowable. And if you're investing in a biotech company, if it's really cutting-edge biotech, probably only eight people understand the technology. And if the company's any good, six of them work at the company. <laughs> you do an outside <laughs> reference on that. And the other two, you call say, well, it could work, might work, might not. <laughs> I so enjoy what you're saying because I often say, if you're going to make a breakthrough, well, you're getting to some place that nobody's ever been before. So how can you possibly know how to do that? How, how can you possibly know? We are blind explorers in a world with many, many cliffs and rocks and chasms. Very well said. So navigating that, what would you advise people in terms of approaching it with an open mind and a curious, you know, if you like, approach to understanding what's needed if they're going to be successful? I mean, you have to have brains, obviously. That's a prerequisite. But 
The keys to business are a network and experience. And you're not going to have any experience because you're freaking 28 years old. And by the way, not having experience is not a bad thing. Entrepreneurs won't think, well, I want Pierre Lamond on my board because he's got 40 years of experience. No, if, if you demonstrate that you're going to out-hustle other people, you can very quickly convince the CEO that they're way better off with you, you know, than with Paul Mater, who's got other things distracting him. So number one, don't ever treat anybody badly. People will yes. remember yep. forever. But yep. number two, recognize that whoever you meet now early in your career and build relationships with are people you're going to be seeing and bumping into for the rest of your life. That doesn't mean you should be Machiavellian and choose well, but you know you should focus on characteristics like people who are bright and ambitious rather than people who are good drinkers and, and have <laughs> access to good pot, even though that's not relevant anymore. How do you think VCs can help entrepreneurs, founders? Because I think that's something that is a very hot topic today. Oh, God. Yes. And the answer is in many, many ways. And the proof of that is if this wasn't a wonderful and really important part of capitalism, it wouldn't exist anymore. This is an American invention, and it makes enormous sense. Most founders are first-time founders. Some are second-time founders. Even the second-time founders, the experience of their first company, not super relevant, but we know V2 is always better than V1. I'm working on V43, okay? I've been on 42 boards. I've seen the same car accidents again and again and again. I can tell you who's, you know, who's going to run that stop sign up there. I can yeah. tell you when to worry about cash and when to worry about you're not growing fast enough. You know, I've interviewed hundreds or thousands of senior executive candidates. There are just so many ways and they all get back to, to one thing. American business has created this role because we see all the startups. We see startup after startup after startup. Nobody else does other than, you know, maybe uh, furniture lessers, uh, real estate people. And so we, we, we can help in so many ways. And, you know, Bob Higgins used to answer this by talking about Paul Severino. Bob would say, well, Severino's down to his last 500 million, but he's still asking for venture investment in his new company. Why do you think that is? Yeah. Well, uh, he doesn't need the capital. He wants the help. He knows actually he'll get two things. He won't get phenomenal operating experience from someone who's been in an operating company for 30 years. He should get an outside director for that. But he will get really good predictive insights into what's going to happen with his business going forward. Even if it's, this is his third company, he's going to avoid making some of the mistakes he hasn't made before. Let's hope he learned from his mistakes in his first two companies. He won't make those mistakes again. But there are a lot of mistakes he hasn't made yet. A whole lot. And that's the wonderful thing about business. There's an infinity of mistakes. And most importantly, he gets a visibility on the market that he can't get any other way. Because venture capitalists spend all their time knowing what's going on in the market. You talk to people in a company and th they admit 
you know, you say to them, well, what about this? Or what about that? They say, I don't know. I'm, you know, I'm worried about my release next week. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I'll, I'll say that sounds counterintuitive to some people when you say market visibility, because they're in the market, living in the market. But I think there's a point you're making, which is very important. And unquestionably, we can help with that because, as you said, we can identify risks that they have no visibility to yet. Yeah. But the CEO's got essentially three jobs to do. They've got to bring vision for the business. They've got to bring the resources necessary to grow the business. And then they yeah. have to manage the business day to day. The yeah. resources necessary to grow a business are capital and people. They've got to be able to get people to follow them. So one of the things that drives me crazy is when an entrepreneur comes in to pitch you and you say, how are things going? They go, great. You know, I can't wait to be done with fundraising and get back to running my company. That is your company. Fundraising is running your company. General Motors still raises money. Intel still raises money. The resources you have to bring to your company are people and capital. And they're equally important. And so what we bring to an entrepreneur that they can't get another way is visibility into the capital markets, particularly the opaque private capital markets, which yeah. are less opaque now with crunch base and all this stuff. But what's really going on and what's going to really go on is still pretty closely, closely held. Yeah. We used to say that raising capital should be like breathing. You just got to do it. Otherwise, you're not going to survive. Otherwise, you're not going to survive. And you yeah. know what? If you don't like that, you don't like BCs, open that pizza parlor. It's great. God yeah. love you. You'll have a happy life. If you're going to do technology, which means doing something nobody's done before and charging a lot of money for it when you're the only one that can do it initially and getting those kind of rents and growing really fast as a result, the only way to do that is with, with capital. Because if you could do it without capital, 50 other people would be doing it. Absolutely. Well, let's go there because you very much piqued my interest last time we were talking by saying, why VC versus pizza? Tell me about that. Why VC don't invest in pizza is because what VCs really need is, and I'm now going to draw a curve, Michael, is they need cash flow that goes like this and then like this. Yeah. Um, they, They obviously need to invest in businesses that require a significant amount of capital, because that in and of itself is a barrier to competition. And then obviously they need to get paid. So they need a business that could become enormously profitable. And that holds true for doing things that nobody has done before. It does not hold true for pizzas. Lots of people have done pizzas before. Pizza parlor has no barriers to entry, very little capital requirement. And as, as a result, very low profitability afterwards. And you know, the, the, the name in venture capital is to invest in a company that's solving a problem that people really need solved that nobody has done before and having a monopoly for a brief period of time. And if that's it, if you're a one-trick pony, you're Osborne, it's over. You either have a very big idea like Facebook or you have the ability to continue to come up with new technologies that you can add on and do product line ex- expansion, do adjacent expansion, and continue to defend your monopoly status, which 
happens in security certainly happened for Intel. They kept making new products and they kept being the first with every product they made because they were out in front. Yeah. And you have something really durable and a great venture deal. Yep. Well, this is one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you is that you always take a different approach to describing things in a way anybody can relate to. I think anybody can relate to that. So thank you. Now, what's your favorite investment and why? And what is it about that investment that makes it such a great VC investment? My favorite investment is a company called To You. It's an education company. And the reason I love it is because it, what they do is they enable universities to put their master's programs online. And at this point, they're public and they've expanded greatly and they have a whole educational continuum that starts with boot camps and short courses and all the way to master's degrees with great universities. And the reason I like it so much is because everybody wins. Students win because they don't have to leave their job at Walmart, North Dakota, and move to LA and rent some shitty apartment so they can go to get a master's degree in social work in person. They get to stay in their mom's house, save all that money, work at Walmart, and get the degree online. Same degree, same. it's, it's a USC degree, same tuition. Universities like it because it allows them to expand their enrollment. And departments like social work at USC, which used to be losing money and the dean would have to go to the president every year and beg for more money, is now cash flow positive. Society wins because the enrollment's gone from 40 masters of social work a year to 750. So yeah. there are a lot more people, you know, masters in education, for example, we have a shortage of teachers, a lot more teachers being admitted out there. So the university wins, the student wins, the society wins, and also faculty win, because yep. when you expand enrollment like that, you need more faculty. Well, who do we use for faculty? Often retired people who would love to keep teaching. So they teach some, they teach classes. They don't do lectures. Lectures are, are the professor at the university, but we hire a ton of adjunct faculty. A class is 11 students on a screen and a faculty member. The company's motto is no back row, but the professor is up in Boundary Waters, northern Minnesota, and he can and he's spent 40 years in this field learning, and he can apply that. And the company wins because pretty much every employee in the company loves what they do in its site. They keep winning awards for great places to work in the Washington area. There are three reasons people come to work: the mission, the day-to-day -day job and the people they work with. And the mission is really important, and companies forget that. CEOs forget that. Absolutely. Day-to-day um, -day job everybody's focused on, and the people they work with, will everybody be nice to each other? But mission is very important. And Actually, increasingly so. For this generation, mission and purpose in particular really matter. Yeah. And they're willing to walk away from money to do it. God bless them. Absolutely. Yeah. That, that sounds like a a, a really purposeful company with a real impact too, which is great. So why was it a great VC investment and how did you find it? I found it through a friend who sadly is now deceased, Mike Danziger. And Mike knew the founder and knew me because we share some recreational interests and introduced me and I had lunch with him in Harvard Square and knew I wanted to invest. It was a great VC investment because the company has grown 
became public, was independent, and it even bought one of our portfolio companies, which it's grown incredibly well. So in terms of fulfilling our obligation of limited partners, we more than did that. So what's great about that is you, you described something else that I think very few people really understand is that you met him and you immediately knew you wanted to invest. What does it take to understand that? What did you see in him? Well, he went to Princeton. the way he articulated what they were doing was at the same time you could tell he'd said it 50 times but he said it in such a compelling way it was almost like a political candidate you feel like this is the first time they've ever told you the story they're telling you even though they've told it a hundred times and he was very bright and had the exact right experience for this job. You really want to back people, ideally, who are genetically designed for being the CEO of that company. And what are those genetics, though? That, that's the thing everybody wants to know. Those genetics are, first of all, an, an innate interest in the subject area, a love, I would say a love, a passion for the area, a job experience that allowed them to identify the problems with yep. the space. Because as you know, the worst companies are people sitting around the kitchen table kind of, well, I really want to start a company. Let me yeah. think of an ID. Entrepreneurs. No, the best companies are companies where people are working in a big company and they say, you know how freaking stupid it is? Every day we do this the same stupid way. And yeah. there's a much better way to do this. Exactly. And by the way, one of the reasons those companies are successful is because they're not the only guys that noticed what a stupid way to do things that is. What you want as a startup when you go into a customer is you don't want to have to explain to the customer what the product does. I mean, the worst thing is to say, let me tell you about this problem you don't realize you have or this great opportunity to make your life better that you didn't even think about. What you want to do is go in and say, hey, we make printers that print on both sides of the paper. Oh, my God, where have you been? Finally, somebody <laughs> figured this out. That's what you want to hear, right? Exactly, yeah. That's exactly. what you want to hear. And yeah, those companies fact. come from people with industry experience who've been astute observers. Yeah, well said. I'm a big believer that it's actually not just the pain, but ideally something that you're living that you have to solve. So I love the Sun Microsystems examples, for example. You know, it's engineers building workstations for themselves. You know, that's... So powerful. That is, that is so powerful. That's yeah. the story of Hewlett-Packard. Yeah, I mean, he was perfect like that. Yeah. Can't somebody make a decent oscilloscope? I need an oscilloscope. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Oh, I'll make it. Love those stories. That's a story of so many successful companies, actually. Couldn't agree more. So last open question. If you could share anything that you'd like that we haven't touched on, that would help students who are trying to approach a career in BC. And remember, some of them have no clue what BC is yet, and others think they already know they want to be at BC. What would you want to make sure you've shared that we haven't talked about? They really need to come up with a reason why they want to do BC. And because you get rich is not a good reason because you probably won't anymore anyway. So it may be too late for that. They need to have been doing something that demonstrates a real interest in this for a long time. I mean, if they're not reading a ton of Fortune, Forbes, Wall Street Journal, every article they can see about about venture capital, then it, it may not be the right thing for them. 
they need to be able to answer in an interview the question, why don't you just go start a successful company and then in your 40s become a venture capitalist like Michael Scott did? I will ignore that remark because because I don't want to resemble anything in the way of success. I think there are much better examples of that. My my son, who is way wiser than me, version two, started a company a few years ago, and he's done very, very well. He's got 20 employees, crazy valuation. And he said, you know, I've, I've got a bunch of friends from Harvard who, who are in venture capital. I don't have anything to say. You know, I'll become a venture capitalist after I built a successful company or two, and I've got something to to help entrepreneurs with. So, Well, I, I love that. It has a great place to end. So I want to thank you very much for taking time. This was awesome and very natural. So as we love to say in England, brilliant, Paul. Thank you for all the great insights and the stories there. I hope you all agree with me. It was worth pressing record. He's such a natural. And now before I say goodbye, just a reminder to hit subscribe if you want to enjoy more episodes from other great VCs. And in the meantime, happy investing until we learn again.